Welcome to Take Up and Read, a bite-sized Bible study podcast on the Sunday Catholic Mass readings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. This Sunday is the sixth Sunday in Ordinary Time in Year A. Our first reading is Sirach, chapter 15, verses 15 through 20, telling of the saving power of following God's law. The book of Sirach itself was written in Hebrew by Jesus ben Sirah, or Jesus son of Sirach, sometime in the early 2nd century BC, and later translated into Greek. Sirach is one of the so-called deuterocanonical books rejected by Protestants, but included in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. Sirach is largely a synthesis of Old Testament law and moral teaching communicated in the form of Proverbs, which were intended to promote the Jewish tradition of wisdom during a period of Hellenization in the Near East after the conquest of Alexander the Great. This passage is reminiscent of Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 and 16. See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you are entering to take possession of it. Jesus will expound upon this great tradition of Old Testament law during his Sermon on the Mount in this Sunday's Gospel reading. Our psalm this Sunday is Psalm 119, a song in celebration of the law of the Lord and well suited to the theme of this Sunday's first reading and Gospel. Psalm 119 happens to be the longest chapter in the entire Bible, and we only read an excerpt here. The psalm is an eightfold acrostic, meaning that the first eight lines start with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet the second eight with the second letter, and so on. This sort of literary feature is often lost in translation, though Monsignor Ronald Knox rendered these psalms as English acrostics in his very beautiful translation of the Bible. You can find the Knox translation in print and free online. This Sunday's second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-10, through 10, which picks up from where we left St. Paul last week. Recall last week that Paul said he did not want his evangelism to rely on the wisdom of men. To more advanced, mature Christians, however, Paul's missionary team will teach the hidden wisdom of God revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. This wisdom, which God predetermined before the ages, recalls the poetic description of the eternity of God's wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the sons of men. By referring to Jesus as the Lord of glory, Paul makes explicit his divinity. As in Jewish writings, this term was typically reserved for God. See Acts 7, verse 2, and Ephesians 1, verse 17. At the end of our passage, Paul loosely quotes a combination of Isaiah 64, verse 4, and Sirach 1, verse 10. Paul's letter is quoted at this point in the Catechism of the Catholic Church's teaching on the blessedness of heaven. See paragraph 1027. Paul applies the Jewish eschatological dichotomy between this age and the age to come, when there would be a new creation. Finally, it may sound strange to say that the Holy Spirit scrutinizes the depths of God. As Paul explains in the next verse, For what person knows a man's thought, except the spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the spirit of God. 
Our gospel this Sunday is Matthew 5, verses 17-37, picking up where we left off last week with Jesus preaching his Sermon on the Mount. We should recognize Jesus' posture here as that of a new Moses, who we recall approached Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Moses' promise of a future prophet like himself. See Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, and Acts 3, verses 20 through 22. This prophet was to come because the Israelites requested that they no longer hear directly the terrifying voice of the Lord in the cloud at Mount Sinai. In the incarnation of Jesus, God made man. We hear the Lord's voice among us in a human nature. Our passage this Sunday includes four of Jesus' so-called six antitheses, designated by the formula, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus' teaching in his own name was significant, as we read at the end of the sermon at Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Just as Moses was the quintessential lawgiver of the Old Testament, Jesus, the new Moses, teaches the law with authority, indeed as God the Son. Jesus' use of the doublet law and prophets is shorthand referring to the entire Old Testament. Jesus comes to fulfill the law and prophets, for as we see at Matthew 11 verse 13, the law itself prophecies of his coming. For more on how Jesus perfectly keeps and fulfills the law, See paragraphs 577 to 582 of the Catechism. As summarized at paragraph 592, Jesus did not abolish the law of Sinai, but rather fulfilled it with such perfection that he revealed its ultimate meaning and redeemed the transgressions against it. Within the context of the sermon, we gather that Jesus is referring to the moral commandments of the law, as the sacrificial system will cease to be operative with his establishing a new covenant in his blood on the cross. That said, it can seem like Jesus is contradicting or changing the law with this formula, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. This was actually a Jewish pedagogical idiom, which might more correctly be rendered, you thought the law meant X, but even more so, it means Y. Our lectionary translation says that not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law. The Revised Standard Version, however, gives the more literal translation. Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law. The Greek letter iota corresponds to the Hebrew letter yod, the smallest character in the Hebrew alphabet. Dots, moreover, serve as a subtle distinction between various Hebrew characters. The essence of Jesus' teaching throughout our passage is that simple obedience to rules will not do if the heart is not also brought into conformity. He calls his disciples to a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. A striking invitation considering how renowned these groups were among the people for their piety. We will see, however, that their observance often slipped into legalism. Jesus uses Semitic hyperbole in order to make his point regarding anger. Even calling someone a fool is morally problematic, whether or not paired with bodily harm. Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom, or Son of Hinnom, likely the namesake of a past owner of this land which lay south of Jerusalem. More than once it is referred to in the Old Testament as a place of infant human sacrifice to the god Molech. In Jesus' day, it had come to be used as a dumping ground where garbage was burned. Needless to say, Gehenna came to be a synonym for hell, though it could also mean a place of temporary purgation of sin. Jesus' metaphor about being thrown into debtor's prison 
is a basis for the Catholic belief in purgatory, a purification process for venial sins after death. The word translated here as penny actually refers to a Roman coin of low value called a quadrans. By counseling the unreconciled to leave their gift at the altar, Jesus implies that charity and mercy are more important than ritual sacrifice, a teaching he makes explicit in Matthew 9 verse 13. This is all the more striking considering the Sermon on the Mount was preached in a mount overlooking the beautiful Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel. A Galilean pilgrim to the Jerusalem temple would have had to make a long trip home to be reconciled with their antagonist. Our Lord's words on lust and adultery contain more pedagogic hyperbole to emphasize the importance of avoiding temptation. The Old Testament contains many warnings about lust. See, for instance, Proverbs 6, verses 25 and 26, or Sirach 9, verse 5. Jesus' point is that chastity of the heart, mind, and eyes is as important as chastity of the body. This short instruction on lust and adultery is one of the focal points of St. John Paul II's organizing triptych for his theology of the body. Jesus' teaching on divorce is uncompromising, despite the wide acceptance of the practice, even among Christians. The Mosaic Law provided tacit support for divorce in the Old Testament period, not by endorsement, but by codifying rules around it as a pre-existing custom. See Deuteronomy 24, verses 1-4. through 4. During an encounter between Jesus and some Pharisees at Matthew 19, verses 3-11, through 11, we learn that, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Jesus makes reference to the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden at Genesis 2, verses 22-24, this teaching being a restoration of God's original intent for marriage. Here and in the passage in chapter 19, Jesus is entering a debate against the two major pharisaical schools of his time. Disciples of the rabbi Hillel permitted divorce under very light circumstances, while followers of the rabbi Shammai restricted it to cases of sexual immorality. Jesus' teaching on divorce is reported straightforwardly by Mark and Luke, but in Matthew's accounts here and in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the later discussion with the Pharisees, Jesus includes what is sometimes mistaken for an exception clause. Our lectionary translation renders this as cases of unlawful marriage, which makes its meaning clear. In the RSV, this Greek word, porneia, is translated as unchastity. The term is used by St. Paul at 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 2 regarding an illicit marriage between close relatives, which would have been illegal under Jewish law. See Leviticus 18 verses 6 through 18. The startled reaction of Jesus' disciples in Matthew 19, as well as Paul's words at Romans 7 verses 1 through 3 and 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 through 11, indicate that Jesus' radical teaching was well understood by his disciples. It is possible that Matthew, whose gospel is targeted at Jews and Jewish Christian converts, wanted to assure his readers that Jesus did not approve of Gentile unions that they would find abhorrent. These relationships were not marriages at all due to consanguinity. Since it goes beyond the scope of our Bible study here, I will include a link to the USCCB question and answer page on the distinct Catholic practice of annulments, as well as a document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith regarding the so-called Petrine and Pauline privileges. The teaching on false oaths can also be easily misunderstood, with some modern Christian groups rejecting oaths of any kind. Jesus is referring to false oaths, which requires some historical context. In fact, the scriptures are replete with valid and commendable oaths. One of the Lord's angels even swears an oath at Revelation 10 verses 5 through 6. 
Oaths were a very serious matter in Jewish antiquity, with penalties and curses attached in the event that one party violated the solemn agreement. If one sworn the name of the Lord, for instance, they invited his judgment upon them if they did not follow through on the oath. See Deuteronomy 23 verses 21 through 23. Seeking a loophole, some legalists among the scribes and Pharisees had proposed that such curses were not applicable if an oath was sworn by something less than God, such as heaven, the temple, or Jerusalem. This practice provided leeway for making dishonest oaths that one never had any intention of keeping. Jesus condemns this practice again at Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, exposing the self-deception with these words. So he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus' instruction here is an exhortation to honesty in dealing with others, whether under oath or not, without parsing the trivial semantics of oath swearing. That's all we have time for today. Let's conclude with a colic from this Sunday's Mass. O God, who teachest that you abide in hearts that are just and true, Grant that we may be so fashioned by your grace as to become a dwelling pleasing to you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more and find resources, visit studycatholic.com. And please tell your friends about the show and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Thanks again, and God bless.